Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast, and welcome to our year-end review. Based on listener requests, we are releasing each of our eight year-end interviews as what we call an extrasode, a 20 to 25-minute piece covering a single topic. This extrasode is with Jorn Schottenberg, who starts by talking about a German news article about eating too much fatty food during Christmas break to discuss public education and ways to make aware and treat patients ranging from F3 and F4s all the way down to obese adolescents and children. Questioners include Louise Campbell and me, and we begin. And with us right now, we have Jorn Schottenberg, who's been a friend of the podcast throughout the years, been part of our EASL, AASLD coverage, and has been on several other times. Stephen is triple booked this morning again, but we have Louise with us as well. And Jorn, so what subject would you like to discuss this morning? Hi, Roger. Uh, hi, Louise. And thanks again for inviting me for this uh, wrap up. And one aspect that comes to my mind immediately when you ask me is, of course, the whole public health situation here in Germany. We're facing another complete lockdown as of today. Interestingly enough, when I looked into the newspaper, I read a comment that staying home for Christmas related to COVID measures and eating over Christmas might lead to increased prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I was struck by this because, of course, COVID is an expected comment in the public newspaper, but I wasn't prepared to read about non-alcoholic fatty liver in a German mainstream newspaper. And to me, this has two or three very important implications that we've discussed over the year in the podcast and, and in particular the patient uh, groups, Louise and um Others have commented about, I, I think there is a clear increase in the public awareness that fatty liver disease is a relevant and in a subgroup of patients, serious condition. I think there is an urgent need for that, in particular to put the whole story into perspective. We're reading about increasing prevalence of metabolic diseases in the general population, about type 2 diabetes, and the fatty liver aspect has not been as extensively covered in the past. And I do see at multiple levels, uh, some changes. So uh, politicians are starting to become interested in this. I do see an increased awareness with colleagues we're talking to. We're setting up a treatment screening strategy to provide general healthcare providers in Germany, primary care physicians, but also secondary care physicians with some guidance with regards to how to identify relevant subgroups. And the discussion in the public domain is, of course, very supportive of that because you have to adapt and be able to achieve a change to be physicians and patients living this. For an example, in the past, I've heard a lot about why should I bother about diagnosing non-alcohol fatty liver disease in my patients? because there's no treatment. Now, with a perception that it might be a relevant subgroup to provide education and um, preventive measures to, this is in a whole different picture. And I'll bite that the primary care physician or the gastroenterologist might not be the best person to do extensive counseling. I think 
by informing the patient, he'll put him into the role to be able to take care of his own health status. And, and, and the empowerment of the patient, I guess, is a, is a word we've discussed in the podcast over the year. And now with that public newspaper appearance and the report really in a German newspaper um, in the context of COVID, uh, I think this has just uh, come to a new level. So that's fascinating. Louise, do you see anything like that in the UK? Um, I think, to be fair, probably not. What we had was, as you're aware, an obesity strategy. And everybody talks about the obesity side and the weight loss, whether it's for cardiac or for diabetes. But actually, the sad thing was they didn't use the opportunity to link it to fatty liver disease. We know that those who can reverse diabetes, it's the liver and pancreatic fat loss that is intrinsic in that process. So with people know they're overweight, but they don't know that they've got fatty liver disease. And unless we start to connect the two, which is great to hear that they're doing it in Germany, we're missing opportunities. And multiple guidelines come out that talk about using innovative technology to screen for alcohol. Nice, I've got one out recently and had a conversation, but they miss the opportunity to screen for fatty liver disease. And then the reply was, we've got a fatty liver disease policy. Yes, if you've been diagnosed with fatty liver disease, you access that policy. But where do we get before you access that policy? So we're not screening, we're not doing so. It is really encouraging because that suggests people and the general public may well take ownership of it. And if they drive it, they will drive policy change, doctor's awareness and their own health concerns. And it becomes a wellness issue. People can keep their liver well. They don't get multiple diseases as a relation and they can have some control. So I think it's fantastic news, but I'd like to see something similar here. Very interesting. And I, I think you, you raise important points, Louise, too. Along that side, I think it's important to not raise an, an, an awareness that most people are in a very severe advanced stage if they have fatty liver disease, but that this is the perfect time and point to, to actually start preventive measures and prevent metabolic complications, including heart disease, including cancer, potentially. We've looked in a German population, we see more cancer over time in the patients. So I think it is really an important point for a patient to take control of his metabolic health and do changes. But also we discussed a lot of times on the podcast that, you know, with improving diagnostics and strategies to identify the really advanced patient population, we're able to divert those towards medical care potentially in the future with therapies. At this point, screening measures that have been shown to be cost effectiveness, thinking of ultrasound and cirrhotics and screening for GL varices in the very advanced population. So I think this is another important point to put this into a perspective. There's a small subgroup, very advanced, and the majority needs good prevention and information education again to avoid complications down the line. So, Jorn, it's interesting because when you told the original story about what you're reading in the newspaper, part of my reaction was to wonder how much duck fat and rich pork sausage one would have to eat in 10 days to do long-term damage to one's liver if one wasn't already cirrhotic. Now, that's a very American way of looking at this stuff because everything in the States is so wildly sensationalized. If you want to get somebody's attention, amplify the problem by a factor of 100 and maybe somebody will listen. So that was my first reaction. And my second reaction was we can't even get that dialogue going here now. Everybody is so subsumed by COVID and what isn't being done or what is being done or is it a real disease or all this other garbage that has seeped into our structure. But so let me go back to the first question first. Is there a risk if you over-sensationalize the story that you tell to Germans? I know Americans would react. 
that they will uh, yawn and say, well, that's not real. I do see the risk that you get a certain pushback just related to the big numbers. Those are not realistic spendings. If you put that onto a payer's perspective, there's no need for payers to be covering one quarter of the German population for the treatment of fatty liver disease if a drug comes available. So I think that's one road where the discussion shouldn't go. And the second aspect is that if you look at secondary care expert providers diagnosing and staging liver disease patients, they also are overwhelmed with seeing one quarter of the population. And I think um, here the important message is we have seeing an incredibly strong uh, improvement in, in identifying patients, relevant subgroups, novel biomarkers, and will come up with a very robust strategy on recommendations who to screen. My perception, and I think a strategy could be to start at the very end, the ones where there is proof of cost effectiveness, cirrhotics, esophageal varices, and then of course, um, very closely following the advanced stage uh, fibrotics, F3 and more, because they have a short time uh, until they hit endpoints. And then the, the larger majority of the patients really needs good advice, empowerment of their over their health and, and education. And one study that I presented now, post-ASLD, two or three times in the in the post-meeting wrap-ups um, was one that was first authored by Naeem Al-Khuri and, and the prevalence in, in the adolescents, the Nuhans database. And it showed how many young kids these days do have severe steatosis or even intermediate uh, fibrosis using non-invasive uh, techniques. So I think we have to put fatty liver disease in a public health agenda perspective, educate and do a lot of prevention to be able to avoid the end stages. I was just thinking, as Jean was so describing the older population, what are we going to do? Do we do a two-pronged approach? Anybody, any child who's obese, certainly the ones who are, we've now got drugs to treat obesity in children. They should all be having fatty liver um, assessments to make sure. And some of the stuff that came out of ours was startling for the 12 under 12 year olds i think you presented that poster or abstract um roger that their liver severity was in excess of those older than 12. two percent of the under 12 population uh, has uh, serious fibrosis and there were sessions on triglycerides and that and how it affects people later on in life so it was just a, it was just the children and the adolescents are certainly a subject of concern the dialogue louise and i held yesterday with ian Rowe, where a large part of what ian was talking about was strategies for early efficient screening using inexpensive commonly available tests the goal is not to be perfect but to improve the cost efficiency of the process while identifying a significant share of population that should be treated or addressed earlier on. When I was listening to you, it, it kind of felt almost like a pincer movement, right? Let's work back from the folks who need help immediately instead of waiting for people to come out the end of the fire hose, if you will, to put your foot on the hose and stop the supply and then treat the people who are coming through, right? Yeah. So if you screen at F3 and F4, then you're treating the people who are coming through the hose already. And if you use more efficient, cost-effective early screen, Screening, then you can reduce how many people are actually going down the pipe. And uh, over time, it feels like a two-element strategy where together they make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think this is where we got to divert the resources in the young population because you can achieve a lot of metabolic benefit. And, and of course, in the very advanced where we have to provide immediate medical attention. I suppose the argument on that is if you... If you target, and I've discussed it on here before, if you target children when they're younger, you change a lifestyle with a greater effect. A small change upstream makes such a big effect downstream. But also, if we're educating children, we're actually also educating the families around those children. So you get a greater return for the investment of education and 
I have yet to ever fibroscan a child and the parents don't immediately change not only the child, the family and everybody else's diet or lifestyle around them. We're going to have to do it two-way because the rate of obesity is so much faster than we can ever do research in real time. By the time we've ever done research, published and got it approved, we're 68 times more likely to be obese because this doesn't come until 2030 and we know obesity is increasing or predicted to increase by what, 65% by then? So we need to do something now and take a leap of faith to try something new. Otherwise, healthcare is overwhelmed. Forget COVID, healthcare is overwhelmed. Well, and, and, and COVID won't help because as we know, people with fatty liver are susceptible to worse outcomes in the presence of viral pandemic. So there's a circularity there. Louise, I don't think it's an either or though, okay? I mean, one, one of the reasons I've been, we've talked about this on podcast also, one of the reasons I've been fascinated by lean NAFLD is that lean NAFLD patients tend to be faster progressors with fewer comorbidities, which means they are likely to be the most efficient immediate investment that you can make in healthcare system because you're on a fast way to the, to the expensive outcomes, which could be HCC, which could be transplant, which could be the last year of life. Those are the places where money gets spent here, real money on a per patient basis. So to be able to manage those patients provides a health benefit and an economic benefit that will pay off very quickly in tangible, identifiable numbers. On the other side though, you're absolutely right. Number one, obesity is becoming epidemic and the easiest way to change a parent's behavior is to make it something they need to do for the child. So I think we got to figure out kind of what a pincer attack or, or what a both strategy looks like. Yeah, looking at the size of the problem, you have to have strategies for both ends. So I'm, I'm supportive of that. And I think, you know, from a medical perspective, ethical, I have to take care of those patients that are sick now today because I know they're established interventions. And But the prevention part is very, uh, very important. As an expert, uh, I, I can only address that to the society. And it's almost a political process or it needs more support to, to change things and go into schools. There's another project that I got involved in uh, recently, which is actually very fascinating and fits right into this. Here are students, medical students, trying to teach kids in school how to cook healthy. I offered to join them and, and, and educate those kids that normally I would not reach as an uh, adult physician about, uh, you know, one aspect of being metabolically unhealthy. And I think teaching them about cooking school is an initiative that I uh, couldn't be greater because you you uh, you address food and responsibly caring or uh, responsible nutrition in this in this very uh, young population. It's a fantastic thing and all children really should be taught to cook at school but otherwise you do rely more on processed meals and takeaways and all of that. Excellent. Yes, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. If the two leading dietary problems leading to obesity and fatty liver and all the, the entire metabolic galaxy are sugar drinks and trans fat laden foods, A, teaching kids to cook solves that. And B, if you can teach them to taste, then over time you can develop a palate. Uh, one of the things I learned when I had to lose 50 pounds is about taste. If you have a diet that's rich in sugars and fats and salts, it destroys your ability to taste. And as a result, all the subtleties that are in healthy food that make it so interesting are just tastes you don't access. If you can teach kids to cook, and while teaching them to cook and teach them about all the problems with sugar drinks and trans fats, I think you can have a profound impact pretty quickly, particularly if they take those home to their parents and listen to them. But yeah, absolutely. If you look at it from a, a slightly different angle, these companies put these products in for a reason. They stimulate the right areas of our brains. They stimulate the fun, the senses, and the addiction parts. If you were doing that with a 
a dangerous drug, you were deliberately putting it into these products, there would be a serious backlash. So to deliberately put in these and to make you crave the next drink, to make you, is you could say, is it ethical? It's not necessarily what should be happening. I think, Louise, the only way to bring this forward is really to take the whole discussion into the public. And that's, again, coming back to the newspaper article this morning is what's starting to happening now. And it makes me very optimistic that in a, in a public space, the dialogue about leaving a healthy diet and lifestyle will continue and, and, and also with regards to looking at liver health uh, at this time. And um, I don't believe that you'll have restrictions and probably the comparison with dangerous drugs isn't, isn't absolutely right here. But I think, you know, by educating and, and, and providing this public awareness, this is one very good way to bring this forward and advance the public health agenda, also supporting liver health. Oh, absolutely. So how much of the discussion about healthy diet lives in the society already anyway, and extending it to, live, to fatty liver is the change as compared to simply an elevation in discussion of diet? Because here you can read about diet 18 different ways and fad diets and solid diets and all that stuff in, in major publications and people go through phases. But I don't think we've ever had this kind of discussion you're talking about, Jorn, where people focus on, you know, you're going to do your liver damage if you eat this food this week. Very important point, Roger. And I think I'd like to underline that also from a perspective as a physician when I talk to patients. I think highlighting liver health pinpoints one aspect of metabolic health that helps the patient to actually focus because you can be overwhelmed by recommendations to eat less, walk more and, and be more active. But if the patient has a parameter or an organ that he can reflect to and that he can get tested and, and see some results, um, I think this will support greatly. So um, this could be one way to look at liver health that, for example, if you have a, a cap value that's above 300 and you do changes and you, although we do not, you know, have too much data to support longitudinal measurements with regards to histology yet, I think if you do see changes in one of those novel NITs, potentially fatty liver measured by transient elastography, the patient will get some biofeedback that he needs to sustain that healthy lifestyle and in the end come up um, with a metabolically more healthy organism condition, whatever you'd like to call it. I think that's absolutely correct and that's what we certainly see in clinics. And actually the positive mental attitude of people who see that change um, is overwhelming and it's obviously one of the reasons that I develop what I do now. Everybody should have the opportunity to make those changes if they need them before becoming a patient. You can avoid being a patient in some of the areas, but it really is amazing to see that positive lift that people get um, from changing a parameter on even on minor changes in their diet or their lifestyle. They get such reinforcement. Jean's absolutely correct on that. And I think, you know, the field hepatology as such, you might say, why, why, why do you need the liver to, to pinpoint that? It has been so creative and the studies we're doing now are giving us so much detailed information on changes of biomarkers to actually relate this to outcomes and improvements of metabolic health that the entire study uh, world out there exploring metabolic drugs on, on liver health will, will help us to provide patients 
with the information they need, uh, how and in which way should I uh, look at my parameters to, to benefit in the end. And I think that's why hepatology is such an attractive and, and very innovative field now, at least from my perspective. And of course, having uh, received a Nobel Prize for that uh, uh, field this year uh, underlines, I think, the strengths and the uh, uh, the importance that, that can be achieved by looking at liver disease or infectious disease. So, so this is completely off the point question, but it goes back to what you just said. The Nobel Prize, do you see it having an impact on medical students wanting to go into hepatology more readily than in the past? Does it bring more glory and more promise to students? And we're seeing in the States, we're seeing an increase in kids wanting to go to medical school because it would be heroic to fight the next pandemic. And I'm wondering if there's a similar effect with medical school students when the Nobel Prize goes to hepatology. Well, of course, the Nobel Prize is very unique. And the the scientific achievement that stands behind it, identifying a virus in 89, then developing, uh, you know, drugs to cure the virus in that time frame is such an incredible achievement that uh, it's unique. But I think it supports the field. Yes, I think innovation comes from within the field of hepatology to benefit all of medicine. Uh, that's what I tell my students. That's what I like to work as a hepatologist, of course. I'm not sure I catch them all, but some will. So how would we like to wrap up? Jorn, is there a specific message that you'd like listeners to take forward in terms of what they might want to think about doing differently or focusing on in the year ahead or paying more attention to? Yeah, I think it's been an incredible year. And, you know, living through the podcast has also been lots of fun with you. So thank you to you and the team, Louise, and everybody who's joined me whenever I was online. It's been an incredible experience. And thinking about uh, the field of liver disease, as I mentioned, I think we're seeing such a dynamic change with regards to understanding liver pathophysiology and liver disease as a driver of health. I always want to talk about uh, disease and sickness here. I think you can really take control of your liver to to lead a healthy life. And I think we're seeing great steps. And I'm really excited to see what's uh, how this momentum is carrying into the next year. And I'm convinced we'll have great studies emerging and additional benefits for patients uh, just around the corner. Amen. Louise, anything to add? Absolutely not. Summed up perfectly. Okay. So you aren't having you with us this year has been fantastic and your contributions have been consistent and really inspiring. And I'm looking forward to having you back as we head into 2021 and bring this conversation forward. Uh, have a wonderful holiday season. I hope you make it through the uh, lockdown in Germany in, in good uh, physical and um, mental shape and that you don't eat too many of those foods that would destroy your liver over the course of the next 10 days, as your newspapers tell you. <laughs> I think my wife told me we're going to have fish for uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's funny. I, I do think about this, the seven fishes dinner for Christmas Eve in the context of the Mediterranean diet. It does come from Italy, doesn't it? So um, it, it, all, it all makes sense that way. Okay, Louise, see you later. Jorn, see you next year. This ends our extra show with Jorn Schottenberg. If you find this extra show concept valuable, please let us know. And with that, Enjoy your vacation and stay safe. See you in 2021 on the podcast.